Welcome, everybody, to week four of Step by Step, this message series in which we're exploring choices that change everything. I think most of us would agree that our choices have a big impact on our lives. And it's not just the big life-altering decisions. Most of the time, it's those little daily decisions that have a way of adding up to where we end up. And nowhere is that more true than in our spiritual growth. Because our faith journey is not just one or two big decisions we make along the way, it's hundreds of little daily decisions that either move me closer to Jesus or further away from him. And so step by step, I'm making choices that change everything in my spiritual growth. And in fact, the Bible's pretty clear about that in our theme verse for this series from Deuteronomy chapter 30. God says to us, I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him. You see, it's not just the big choosing of life and choosing blessings over curses. It's daily choosing to love God. It's daily making the choice to listen to his voice, to hold fast to him. And so the goal of this series has been to explore just a couple of key areas in our spiritual growth where our daily choices can help us become more of what God created us to be and do more of the things that he created us to do. And of course, one of those areas that we're looking at is God's word. I think most of us would say that the Bible's pretty central to our spiritual growth, but we need to understand the, the Bible is not just meant for the big life moments. It's not just for weddings and funerals. It's not just for once a week in church. It's meant to be a part of our daily lives. In fact, look again at this verse from 2 Timothy that we looked at last week. It says, all scripture is God-breathed. In other words, it all comes to us from God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Those are things we all need every day. And so last week, we spent some time talking about building my life on the Bible and why it's important for me to ground my life in God's word and not just in culture or my emotions or popular opinion. Now today, I want to move from the why to the how, to move from why I need God's word to how do I engage it on a daily basis. Now, when I say engage with God's word, what comes to your mind? What does that look like for you? What do you think of? I think some of us would say that means that I, I read it daily. I read a verse or a passage every day. And some would say, no, that means that I, I study it. I dig deeper into it to get more understanding. 
Some would maybe think of meditating on it, you know, ruminating over and over. Some would say memorizing it. Maybe some of you would say applying it to my daily life. And you know what? All of those would be correct. All of those are ways I can engage daily with God's word. And all of those are things we need to do daily with God's word. But whatever way you're engaging daily with God's word, there are two keys that can help you be more effective. And that's what I wanna look at today. Two keys that can help me engage daily with God's word. So let's jump in. Number one, the first thing I have to do to engage with God's word is to ask the right questions. I must ask the right questions. I think some of us think that the more we grow spiritually, the less questions we'll have about the Bible. But I would say that the opposite is true. The more questions I have about the Bible, the more I'm going to grow, the more I'm going to want to know. I like take, for example, a, a 45-year-old middle-aged man and a five-year-old little boy. Who asked the most questions, right? The little boy, obviously. Those of you who have small children, you know what I'm talking about. They're always asking questions. And their favorite question is why? You know, why is the grass green? Why is the sky blue? Why this? Why can't I? Why, why, why? They're always asking questions. The 45-year-old man doesn't ask a lot of questions because he thinks he's got a lot of life and himself figured out. He knows how things work. But which one of those two is growing in their understanding of themselves and the world around them? It's the little boy. And I think sometimes, especially if we've been Christ followers for a while, we lose that childlike curiosity about God's word. I think that's why Jesus says in Matthew 18, 3, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You need to ask questions when you engage God's word. It's not just any old questions though. You need to ask the right questions. And so I wanna give you three good questions to ask when you engage with God's word. First question what does it say? What does it say? This is what I call the observation question. What am I observing about what I'm reading? What are the words that I'm reading all about? What's the subject? What's the topic? Who's saying what to whom and why are they saying it? Because you see that you understand the Bible is not just one big book. It's actually a collection of 66 individual books that were written by over 40 different human authors inspired by God over about 1,400 years of history. And while all 66 of those books work together to tell God's story, they tell the story in very different ways. Some of the books of the Bible are historical narratives. They, they are like a novel. They tell about times and places and events in chronological order. Like Genesis and Exodus, the first two books, they're historical narratives. The Gospels 
or the historical narrative of Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection. The book of Acts is the historical narrative about the birth and growth of the early church. Some books aren't historical narratives. Some of them are prophetic books. These are the words of God spoken through individuals directly to the nation of Israel, right? Books like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Lamentations and Daniel and Ezekiel, those are prophetic books. Some of the books in the Bible are just collections, collections of songs and poems. That's what the book of Psalms is. Collections of wise sayings, that's what the book of Proverbs is. Some of the books of the Bible are meant to be legal books, right? Like uh, Leviticus. It's all about the law. It's like pulling a book off the shelf at a law school library, and it tells you about all these rules and laws that God set up for the nation of Israel. Some of the books of the Bible are letters, personal letters. Almost all of those books in the New Testament that end in I-A-N-S, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, those are letters written by the Apostle Paul to churches in all of those different cities. Timothy and Titus, those four books towards the end of the Bible, those are personal letters written to Paul to these young men that he had mentored. You've got to know who's saying what to whom. It matters. What am I reading? What is it saying? So when you read that verse of the day that pops up on your Bible app or you read that verse that's at the top of the page of your daily devotion book or that passage that you're digging into for your Bible study, you need to start by asking the who, what, when, where, and why questions because the more you observe, the more impact the Bible's gonna have on your life. The second question you need to ask is not just what does it say, but what does it say to me? This is what I call the personalization question. Because the Bible was written to different people in different places under different circumstances from different cultures, there are principles and truths that still apply to my life and my circumstances today. In fact, this week, I did a little experiment. As I was preparing for this message, I just pulled my Bible off of my desk, randomly opened it up, and stuck my finger to a page, which, by the way, is not a way I would recommend to do a Bible study or a daily devotion. But I wanted to prove a point that all of the Bible is useful in our daily lives. And, of course, I ended up on the Old Testament book of Hosea, right? A pretty obscure book. Most of us probably haven't read. Many of us maybe haven't even heard of it, but observation tells me it is a book of prophecy. Hosea was a prophet who spoke for God to the nation of Israel when they had been in rebellion against God. And so I ended up in chapter 14. Let me just read this to you. Here's what it says. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Assyria cannot save us. We will not mount war horses. We will never again say our gods 
to what we, what our own hands have made. For in you, the fatherless find compassion. I will heal their waywardness and love them freely. Now on the surface, it seems like, what does that have to do with me? I'm not Israel. I'm not looking to Assyria to save me. I don't even know what Assyria is. And I'm certainly not making, you know, little idols with my hands that I'm worshiping. But if I really dig in and ask, what could this be saying to me? Maybe I'm not Israel, but maybe there are times where the sin in my life is creating some of the chaos and pain and hardship in my life. I'm not looking to Assyria to save me. It doesn't even exist anymore. But maybe I'm, I'm looking to powers on this earth. Maybe I'm looking to things of this earth that seem powerful to save me. I'm not making idols with my hands, but I make money when I work with my hands. Could that be an idol, a God in my life? You see what I'm saying? When you just ask the, what does this say to me? It begins to open up your eyes and your heart to what God wants to show you. The third question you need to ask, and maybe the most important question of all, is what will I do about it? What will I do about it? I call this the application question. In other words, what changes am I going to make in my thoughts or my attitudes or my behaviors? Because as I said last week, information ain't transformation without application. And so if I take this passage from Hosea, maybe an application point for me would be to look honestly at the sin in my life and the chaos it's causing and to recognize that I don't need to be mad at God or mad at other people. Some of it I brought about myself. Or maybe I can be honest that while I'm not looking for Assyria, maybe I'm looking to a political party or or I'm looking for a social movement to change me and change the world instead of God. Because see, the more questions you ask when you engage God's word, the more God's word is going to impact your life. You gotta ask the right questions, but there's a second key to engaging God's word, and that is that I must make the right interpretation. I must make the right interpretation. It's not just about the right observations, it's about getting the right interpretation. It's not just what does the Bible say, it's what does it mean. You know, interpretation is probably one of the most misunderstood aspects of the Bible. Particularly in our culture, have you ever heard somebody say, well, that's your interpretation of the Bible and you've got your interpretation and I've got my interpretation and he's got his interpretation and that sounds good in this pluralistic go along to get along world that we live in. The problem is it's not true. The Bible is not open to each of us being able to make our own personal interpretations of it. It is open to multiple personal applications of it, but not individual interpretations of it. And see, the problem with misinterpretation is it creates chaos. 
I mean, the pages of history are littered with time after time where well-meaning Christians misinterpreted Scripture and created chaos for themselves and for others. The, the crusades of the Middle Ages were the result of a misinterpretation of the Bible. The support in the 1800s of many American churches of slavery was a misinterpretation of the fact that Paul wrote to and talked about slaves and told them to be obedient to their master and they took that, misinterpreted it to mean that God was okay with slavery. He never was, never will be, and is never going to happen. Paul was just saying whatever your current circumstances, you can honor God, but that misinterpretation caused many churches many preachers to stand in support of slavery. Or, or more recently, some of y'all right may remember the folks from Hillsboro Baptist Church. You remember that small group of people who would show up and protest the funerals of soldiers coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan? And they would hold up these horrible posters that said horrible, mean things because they misinterpreted what God was saying. But listen, I'm not saying if you misinterpret the Bible, you're gonna end up being some part of a cult. What I'm saying is that in my life, sometimes a misinterpretation of God's word can cause me to get off track in my life. I think that's why Paul in his second letter to young Timothy writes these words. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who does not need to be ashamed and, check this out, who correctly handles the word of truth. You see that connection between a correct interpretation and living a godly life? So how do I do that? How do I correctly interpret God's word? I'm glad you asked that question. I wanna give you four rules for interpretation. These are sort of four uh, pillar key things to remember and to do to interpret the Bible correctly. The first one is consider the context. Consider the context. Because the Bible is not a collection of standalone statements. They can't be understood by just looking at them on their own. That's why asking those observation questions, the who, what, when, where, and why, are so important because it's about the context of what you're reading. And it's easy to take things out of context, right? For example, if I were to say Cedar Creek Church is on fire, what does that mean? Well, it depends on the context. If I have been talking about how God is moving and his spirit's being poured out and lives are being transformed and the community's being changed, Cedar Creek Church is on fire. You know I'm talking about a spiritual fire. But if I say Cedar Creek Church is on fire, please remain calm, but quickly make your way to the exits and leave the building, that's a very different understanding. That's a very different phrase based on what comes before it or what comes after it. You know, one of the causes, probably the number one cause of misinterpretation is reading verses out of context. And yet people do it all the time. I'll give you an example. 
John chapter 15, verse six, right? This is Jesus talking to his disciples. Jesus says, if you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. That verse by itself, it's easy to read that and assume that Jesus is saying, if you don't stay close to me, you're gonna be thrown into the burning fires of hell. In fact, I've heard teachers and preachers interpret it that way. Here's the problem that doesn't fit the context. That phrase, what Jesus is saying, is part of a long conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples on his last night with them in the upper room. And that conversation starts all the way back in John chapter 13. And when you read that whole conversation, it is obvious that the whole purpose of Jesus talking to them is to comfort them and encourage them. That's why in chapter 13, he washes their feet to show them how much he loves them. In chapter 14, he makes that wonderful statement about let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me. In my father's house are many mansions. I'm going to prepare a place and I'm gonna come back and take you to be with me in one of those mansions. And he he talks about the comfort of the Holy Spirit coming to lead and guide them after he's gone. He knows their life is about to fall apart in a matter of hours. And so he's speaking comfort and encouragement to them. Why in the world in the middle of that would he throw in the statement, hey, and if you don't get this right, you're gonna burn in hell in eternity. No, it doesn't fit the context. That's how important it is. The second rule of interpretation is you gotta define key words. Define key words. Anytime you're reading or studying the Bible, it's critical that you understand what the words mean, not what you think they mean. Because words can have multiple meanings. Even in the English language, right? I'll give you an example. Grass. What does that mean to you? Well, it depends. For some of you, that's what the stuff you have to cut with a lawnmower in the summer. For some of you who grew up in the 70s, that's a very different thing you're thinking about, right? We probably need to have another message on that. Or how about this, batter. Ladies, you're thinking about making a cake. Guys, you're thinking about major league baseball. You need to understand what the word really means. And here's one of the issues we have because we read and study the Bible in the English language, which is a very limited language. It has a lot fewer words than others. See, the Bible was not written in English, not even in the King James English. The Bible was written down originally in Hebrew and Greek and a little bit of Aramaic, and all of those languages have a lot more words. They have multiple words in places where we only have one word. And of course, the the big example that most of us are familiar with is the word love. It's one word in the English language. And so I, I can say I love Taco Bell, and I can say I love Terry Lee. 
two very different meanings, or at least it better be, or I'm in big trouble. But in the Greek language, there are three or four different words for love, agape, which is the love like the unconditional love of God. Phileo, that brotherly friendship love. Eros, that romantic or physical love. So you gotta go a little deeper in what the words actually mean. Because it makes a big difference. Like that verse we just looked at, John 15, 6, about branches being cut off and thrown into the fire. The Greek word that's used there for fire is not the word Hades, which is often used to refer to the fire of hell. It's the Greek word per, which is always used to describe just a, a common fire, like a, a, a campfire or a cooking fire. So Jesus is not saying, guys, if you don't stay close to me, you're gonna burn in hell. Jesus is saying, if you don't stay close to me, you're gonna lose your purpose. Your life is gonna end up being used for something that it was not truly intended to be. Your branch is not gonna produce the fruit that it was made to be. It's gonna end up settling for a second class piece of firewood. So how do you know what word means what? Well, you can either spend half your life studying Greek, Hebrew, or Aramaic, or you can just simply do what your teacher told you in school when you ask her what a word means. Look it up in the dictionary. There are great Bible dictionaries that define and describe the words in the Bible. There's a great online resource. It's just a blueletterbible.org. And we're posting that right now in the chat feature. You can just click on that, put any verse you wanna look at, put the English translation you wanna lose and it, use, and it'll bring up a whole bunch of tools, including a lectionary, a dictionary like Strong's, and you can look and see, is that the word Hades or is that the word per? You gotta define key words. The third thing you gotta do is interpret unclear verses with clear verses. Interpret the unclear verses with clear verses. Listen why Bible dictionaries and commentaries are helpful for interpretation. The best way to interpret the Bible is with the Bible. Does the Bible have confusing verses and passages and things that seem to contradict? Yes but it also has very clear, very obvious verses and you can use both of them to better interpret what you're reading. Example, John in his gospel quotes Jesus with those famous words, John three sixteen: for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. You look at that and say, okay, John is describing Jesus as the son of God. Like God had a son, you know, at some point in his life and he really loved that son, but he sent that son to the earth. But then you back up to the beginning of John's gospel, John chapter one, when he describes the birth of Jesus, he doesn't use historical narrative about Mary and Joseph in the manger. He says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Do you see how together those two verses help us understand that yes, Jesus is the son of God, but he's so much more. He is God incarnate, God in the flesh. The Bible 
can bring clarity to the Bible. And then number four, the final rule for interpretation is look for the most obvious meaning. The most obvious meaning. Somewhere, somehow, we've gotten this idea that the Bible is full of a bunch of secret codes and hidden meanings. It's not. I don't care what Dan Brown or all of his books say. God gave us his word so that we could know him and know his will. He's not hiding things from us. Now hear me, I'm not saying that everything you read in the Bible is obvious or easy to understand. And I'm not saying that the Bible doesn't use numbers and symbolism, certainly it does. Read the book of Revelations, read the Old Testament book of Daniel. There's all kinds of meanings and layers in there. But what I am saying is nine times out of 10, the most obvious meaning is the meaning. Because God's will is found in God's word and he's not playing hide and seek with us. And the more you get to know God's word, the more you can live out his will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will for your life. Now listen, I know we've covered a lot of ground today. And I know I've given you a lot of stuff to consider and think about, but as I get ready to wrap up, I want to give you a very practical tool, something that you can use to take all of these questions and all of these rules of interpretation and use to help you develop just a simple daily way to study the Bible. It's a great book written years ago by Pastor Rick Warren called Bible Study Methods. We're putting a link to that in the chat right now. You can click on that. I think you can get the paperback for about $11 or $12. You can get the e-version of that book for just, I don't know, $9 or $10. It's a great investment in helping you engage daily with God's word because it takes these principles that I've looked at today and it puts them into practical little things you can use, methods that you can use several different methods that fit your personality or what you're trying to do or where you are in your spiritual journey. So I want to encourage you, if you're not regularly engaging with God's word and you don't have any tools, maybe click on that, get that and start to use it. Because here's what I do know for all of us, for me, for you, for all of us, that the more we engage God's word, not in just the big things, but day by day, choice by choice, step by step, the more we do that, the more God is going to transform our lives, our church, our community, and this broken, messed up world we live in right now. So would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for your love that is displayed in the gift of your son and his death on the cross but it is also displayed in the gift of your word that we don't have to guess who you are and what you're like. Thank you that you loved us enough to reveal yourself to us and to reveal your will for us in your word. So God, we need your spirit to not only create a hunger and a desire for your word in our lives, but we need your spirit to open our eyes and our hearts to what you want to say to us.
as we walk step by step following you. We love you, Jesus. Move among us this week. It's in your name we pray. Amen.